Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Guys in the Flag Jackets. If you enjoy the podcast, please feel free to check out our brand new Patreon. Patreon is a platform that lets you support our podcast financially while having a chance to get some exclusive merchandise. Please feel free to visit patreon.com slash guys in the flag jackets or click the link in the episode description to check it out. What a union is, is an understanding that when people come together, they have more power. That if you are dealing with your employer and you're getting low wages and you go up to your boss and say, hey, can you give me some more money? The guy says, hey, you know what? I got 10 other people who want your job. But if you walk in with a union and you sit down and you have collective bargaining and you have the power to strike, for example, then your owners have got to listen to you. They have to listen to your demands. So that's historically what unions have been about. Now, in the last many years, we have seen a decline in trade unionism in this country for a lot of reasons. And you're right. I think there are millions of young people who really are not familiar with what unions are about. Uh, And the reason for that is we've seen many manufacturing jobs which were unionized leave this country. We've seen anti-union activity. Please rise for the national anthem of Iceland. everybody welcome back to the guys in the flag jacket thank you for joining us for episode number two and if you weren't here for episode one feel free to keep listening yeah or go back and listen to episode one (laughs) uh thank you again uh for being here however it is you're being here um you probably listen to us you could be listening to us one of many ways uh through apple podcast through spotify through stitcher through YouTube or through Buzzsprout, um, whatever you're listening to, you're definitely not listening to us on Amazon Music or Google Podcast yet. Yet, yet, yet. Yeah. Well, you might be. You might be listening back. Yeah, it's true. It's Welcome. Very possible from Welcome. the future. Um, yeah, but thank you for joining us. You can find us many ways now. Uh, uh, feel free to review us though. If you are listening to us on Apple Podcast, a five star review would go a long way. Subscribe to us if you're listening to us on YouTube. Share whatever with platform. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't love to sit down with us for 
an hour, 45 minutes <laughs> to an hour every week and just talk politics, talk local politics, talk um, whatever's going on around. And, and again, uh, if you did listen to the first podcast, um, make sure to subscribe, would you please? Yeah. yeah but I, uh, you, you know, you'll know we, we're trying a couple different types of formats. Uh, we'll see how, how formatted we continue to be, but uh, a lot of effort goes into these formats. There's a lot of sound mixing. That I didn't. Uh, Gary does it all. I <laughs> didn't sign up for it. It's just gonna happen. Uh, I guess uh, normally uh, we're starting off with sort of what's going on locally. What's going on? Uh, there's a lot going on in the state of Massachusetts right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of uh, a lot of movement happening. We have we have uh, our statewide offices up for election next year. Our constitutional offices, we call them. Um, uh, Charlie Baker, the governor, is not running for re-election, so there's going to be an opening. Um, there's a slew of candidates well, it's running. It's not an opening; it's an open seat. That's open seat, to yeah. Company, yeah. Yeah, so it'll be an open seat uh, for that for lieutenant governor. Also, the auditor is not running for re-election, so they have three statewide seats open. Potentially um, the attorney general. Yeah, but that's good. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, absolutely. If if um, the attorney general Moore Healy does run for governor, which all indications seem to point to the fact that she will, but I mean, she's who knows? Raising massive amounts of money for. Yeah. Or she could run. Re-election. She could run for re-election of lieutenant governor, or for re-election of attorney general. Um, I mean, there's also the possibility. Of, we hear a lot of rumblings. You know, maybe a race for secretary of state, which may not be an open seat, but there may be a race. Yeah, it could be it. challengers. Um, could could make for some interesting uh, interesting podcast time mm, over, the, over the next few months. Um, sort of how this happens. I guess this, we might as well. We keep saying, well, we'll talk about it eventually, but might as well. What the hell talk about it now for anyone that doesn't understand how this works is um within the state of massachusetts in order to run for one of these statewide seats and be represented by a party the party essentially has to approve we'll say of you now they're, they're partially partially sort of approve of you and what that is is that we the party will hold a convention um before one of these primaries usually many, in the many summer states do this, not just massachusetts. i can only speak for massachusetts yeah. but uh which I don't know if you're from another state. I have no idea why you're listening to us. So, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, they have a convention. In other words, uh, at this convention, it's a nominating convention, and, and delegates from all around the state come together, and they have to vote for each of these offices ahead of the primary. Delegates and, that were elected at the local caucus. Yeah. So each your city and town, you know, has a local Democratic city committee or a Republican city committee or a town committee, however uh, you are. And those individuals get chosen to go to the convention. And once they're at the convention, they have to choose who their preference is uh, before the primary. And then any candidate who receives over 15% within that race, they get to actually go into the primary. And it, it is common that you have people that go, get to the convention and they don't hit that 15% uh, 15% threshold. Uh, they don't hit that 15% threshold. And and then their campaign's pretty much over at that point. They, they go home. A little quick um, math for you, Gary. How many people can make 15%? maximum six six because 100 divided by 15 6.6 so if you have seven candidates running only six are going granted we've seen races where only three people made it and the fourth did not yeah yeah it'd be rare i think to find more than three or four people evenly divided six person race you usually don't have that evenly that that evenly divided usually somebody's running away with it a little bit um and it's sort of an important part to it it's a different aspect of regular campaigning because you're campaigning to like the super involved people who would actually go to a convention um party elite i guess in a way i mean there are a lot of non-elites there but uh, there it is it can be very elitist it can be very um not not inclusive i guess in in many ways but also at the same time it's the way we do it unfortunately so it's the way that that the elections are conducted um one of the things that i think is always interesting is the 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 campaigning prior to so what happens is prior to the convention prior to the convention each individual city or state committee city or state sorry city or town committee uh, is given a certain allocation in the Democratic Party, which we've uh, been members of for a while and have run the caucuses before. For our city. For our city. We are given X amount per precinct, or per ward, rather. Um, there's six wards in the city of Lawrence. 
um, in a smaller place, like Groveland, for example, they only have one what they consider ward, so they only have 35 people. Same thing with like the town of Andover. Most places that don't have bigger populations, in other words. So you get a certain amount. Those people then elect among themselves. So every single local town or city has their caucus. You elect and then those people go. And then we have this weird thing that we also do in the Democratic Party, which is good because it includes more people that aren't represented at these things or can't get elected because they're outnumbered. Uh, we have add-on seats. So if you are a minority, person of color, um, disabled, or have a disability of some kind, um, a younger people, so under 35 in the state of Massachusetts, in the Democratic Party anyways, um, you can get an add-on seat. And that is sent to, essentially you apply and it's sent to the state committee, Democratic State Committee or Republican State Committee, and they have to approve of add-ons to the delegations to even out the numbers. Now, that seems like a great idea, right? To be inclusive with everybody, but when there's little to no outreach to these individuals, how do you expect them to apply? To apply, yeah. Or know it, about it. It's a futile effort, I think. Um, and it just is, it's, it's just not, not a great way to do things, but caucusing in general is just very out of touch now. Mm. Um, As we've seen. Right, exactly. I mean, we caucus <laughs> on a local level for this, but it's very similar to the types of caucus you would see for presidential races. Um, not far off. It, it's very much like you got to be here at a specific time and you pick your candidate. It, you can't it's very, leave the room. you can't leave the room, right? If you're not there, it, it makes it difficult. Like who's, you know, who's got nothing to do it? seven o'clock on a Tuesday. If you unfortunately have something to do that one day at seven o'clock, then you're, you know, you're out of luck. It's, it's kind of, it's not always the best way to go about things, but anyways, make a long story short, a lot of candidates that are um, vying for these spots right now. Um, there are, I think we talked about it last week, a couple gubernatorial candidates, mm -hmm. three announced already. Um, more Healy, most likely fourth in the, in the wings. Yeah. Fourth. Um, Lieutenant governor, there's I think we counted seven or eight names <laughs> yeah, right, right that now. We've seen so far. Um, so again, only three of them announced for that, but there are several in the wings that are testing the waters. I guess we're seeing which race to run in. I mean, in one case, there's someone who's considering both lieutenant governor and attorney general. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> who's that? Eric Lesser. Oh, I didn't realize he was state senator. I didn't realize he was. Uh, Looking at attorney general. Um, yeah, so there are a couple people running. There's even people running for attorney general, and she hasn't even said she wasn't running yet. That's so, true. Um, auditor as well. There's two candidates that have announced. I don't hear of anybody else running no, for auditor. It's been a weird one. Yeah. It's one of the, the, the seats that you'd expect more people to run in, but only two people so far have announced. And have been, I mean, they've been running for it for quite some time now. Yeah. Same as the gubernatorial candidates and the lieutenant governor candidates. The ones that have announced have been in there for a while. So um, we'll see if their efforts pay off. Yeah, we'll see. I, I don't know I, how this sort of pans out um, geographically. And um, caucuses begin in February. So uh, these candidates are going to have to start making up their minds pretty soon. I actually, this is this is the part about elections that I think that nobody pays attention to. So for you to run for governor or any of these constitutional offices, you will have at least had to have your name mentioned prior to this point for people to go in and choose to be undecided when they go to caucus or declare that they're going to be voting for a certain person. This is February of the beginning of the year. I think Texas just closed that this is a good example. They just closed whether or not you can even be on the ballot. So you have had already to get your signatures in to the state of Texas to run for an election literally a year later. I believe their primaries, though, are earlier in the year. Much earlier. Yeah, yeah their yeah. primaries are earlier. Our primaries still sit in September. So. But still, I mean, yeah. I, think, I think the point of this is this is why incumbents, this is why people involved in politics have such a leg up on people who've never been involved before, people who don't understand the system or want to learn about the system. They have such a huge advantage on these people. Yeah. It, it is really about, at least for the candidates, it, it's not necessarily being an insider, but knowing enough insiders to understand the process, really. 
Because truthfully, if you go to these caucus, if you went to your town caucus, you might be in and out in an hour. It's going to be an hour of your day, depending on how big or large. I mean, even we, we have a larger city with six six different wards, but the wards break up and do it simultaneously. And it takes the actual caucusing part usually takes less than 20 minutes. It's more of the paperwork. Yeah, and, and there's seven or eight that, seats yeah. in each. So it's really not sometimes, a huge amount of people. Sometimes they're contested. These years when there's nominating, they'll be contested. They're usually some sort of contesting. But um on off years, you barely even get enough to get half of what you, you know, half that. of your spot. Yeah. So, um, but then once you do get elected, you go to the convention, and it is a long day. I mean, mm. you are at the convention center all day on Saturday. You know, it's a Saturday afternoon. You get there in the morning. You know, you have to hear speeches from not the candidates, but you hear speeches from dignitaries across the party um, who just are there because they think you want to hear them, and mm. you don't. Um, Congress people, yeah. senators, Just people who don't have a primary, you yep. know, they, they get their moment in the, in the sun. Then you have to all these candidates who are running and they get there a lot of time. And then once all that's done, you know, hopefully you've had lunch because dinner's coming up soon and you cast this vote. By the way, it's in a convention center. So the amount of food you can have is restricted. <laughs> right. Well, they have plenty of food available for you at a very expensive price because it's a convention center. But. Once you vote, right? Because then they have a roll call vote. It's a roll call vote. You get breaking up into your your Senate precincts, your Senate districts, right? So you're with everybody in your Senate district, and then you you get in. You know, then there's a roll call vote, and they break you up into your Senate districts, and you're, they all happen simultaneously. But somebody stands up with now an iPad, thankfully, um, and they'll <laughs> if, say, if it were, and they'll they'll, they'll they'll go alphabetical by name, and they'll say Jim, Blatchford, who you're voting for for governor. And I say who I'm voting for governor. Then they go lieutenant governor. And you you have to you have to audibly say these out loud, and everyone in your Senate district hears you, and everything gets computed, and then it goes back into you know the 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 boiler room of the and, convention center. And if that all goes electronically, if it all goes electronic, you also have a paper just on backup. you know backup paper that you got to bring and submit as well. Once this is all tabulated and they have everything in, it's all done. A couple hours goes by, they announce the results. Great. If somebody if it's a two-person race, one person's going to get over 50% and they get the party's nomination. If it's more than a two-person race, if it's a three- or four-person race, usually nobody hits that 50% threshold, ergo they don't get the party nomination. But really all they need is a 15%, right? But, to be on the ballot. To be on the ballot. But if you're a candidate in that race, say you have a, a race where there's, you know... Four people, right? So one per, one Seven per, candidates. Right, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll make it easy. We'll say there's four people, right? One of them doesn't hit 15%. One of those three candidates can now call for a revote, a second round of voting, just within those three people to see if any of them hit the 50% threshold. And I believe nobody even has to drop out for them to ask for the recount. I think they can ask for a second ballot even if nobody drops out. Yeah. Um, because it's the top two. Right. Yeah. It, it, then they go with just to see who would get the party nomination. So, which... Party nominations nowadays don't, don't mean really anything. mean anything because it's not like because they got this, they're going to get some advantage, like an army behind them to help them run. I mean, right. the best example is Josh Zakem. He ran against the incumbent Secretary of State, Bill mm -hmm. Galvin, back in 2018, mm -hmm. won the convention, got over 50% of the vote. There was only two candidates. And he got a, like he got a pretty good number for a guy who was a Boston city councilor. He got what fifty six percent of the vote at the convention, something <sighs> some big number. Yeah, and Bill Galvin, who's been in office literally since what? beginning of time, nineteen ninety. I want to say ninety six or ninety four. No, ninety six oh, was a presidential, so yeah. it'd be ninety four. Yeah, he did run earlier for treasurer and lost, and then came back four years later and ran for secretary. But he's been in there since the nineties. Yeah, um, and. He never lost a convention before. In fact, he got like 60% of the vote last time he was contested at the convention. So it, the convention is take it with a grain of salt. As long as you get on the ballot, that's really all that matters. Yeah. And then it depends on what you can do. Well, I mean, I guess if you, you're going to, it's probably for a lot of them, it's the first time they're in a room that big. True. Um, yeah, this is testing the water. Yeah, they, they can, you know. Maybe they get some money out of it or whatnot. <laughs> this is such know. an insidery. We're sorry, everybody. I don't know. I, I feel like if you're listening to us, you have to be somewhat <laughs> interested, interested in, this. in this. And 
chances are you may already know this. Or you're a family and we're making you listen to this. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so that's pretty much what's going on, I guess. Uh, a lot of other things going on, though. Um, but I think this is a great segue. Obscure party things into a good segue of something else. Okay. You're running for what? We talked about Lieutenant Governor. We talked about Auditor. Um, there are some county-level things that exist across the country. People elect judges, which is weird to me here in New England, where we appoint all of our judges. Um, but I think we have we have quite a unique example of something that doesn't exist really I, that I've seen um, in any other place uh, except our neighbors to the north. Um, it's called the Governor's Council. This is probably the most obscure body that has a significant amount of power in the state of Massachusetts um, in comparison to some other random offices that exist. For sure. What is the Governor's Council, Gary? The Governor's Council is a body elected roughly by county, but not actually by county, but roughly by county. Mm. It, it's rough. It's very rough. They're very rough by county, but especially um, when you count like four counties. Lar they're they're larger than congressional districts. Yes, um, a larger area, and you elect an individual to the governor's council, which is a part-time gig. Mm -hmm. um, you 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 work one day a week um, on on Wednesdays. You get a stipend. You get a stipend. You you go into the state house on Wednesdays for governor's council meetings. Mm. You get a parking spot. That's I guess that's probably pays yeah, for you, it. You get a Boston parking spot, which is a big deal. Um, <laughs> And your main, you have you have several roles, but your main job is to act as the judicial committee for the state of Massachusetts. Not, I wouldn't even say judicial committee. I would say the people who sign off on who our judges are. Like this is this is probably the most significant. I mean, that's what a judicial committee is. Yeah, a ju yeah, I would say in a, like a senate or something like that. Yeah. But nobody knows who these people are. Right. There's eight members of the governor's council. The lieutenant governor, this is one of their constitutional requirements, is to run the meetings. They don't vote. They don't vote. They chair the meetings. They chair yeah. the meetings, though. Um, and when the lieutenant governor's seat is vacant, the governor chairs the, the, the committee. So, I mean, these eight people have direct lines to the executive office. And I can guarantee you, unless you're involved in politics... If you've even heard of this office before, you have no idea who your governor's counselor is. Every single one in the state of Massachusetts since 2000, I want to say 18, are Democrats. The last Republican who represented roughly Worcester County. Registered Democrats. Registered Democrats, yes. They are registered in the Democratic Party and they won Democratic primaries to get into their positions. Um, the last Republican actually was appointed as a clerk magistrate by the governor's council itself. Um, that's what happened to the last Republican because the governor nominated her. Um, her colleagues then approved of her uh, and she left the commission or the council. Mm -hmm. um, long story short, this actually, this was a much more powerful body prior to modern centuries. They used to be in the gubernatorial line of succession. Mm -hmm. So if the lieutenant governor died and the governor died, which it happened mm -hmm. on one occasion back in, I want to say, 1800, um, the chairman of the governor's council became governor. Um, Better than us talking about this. We should just invite our governor's <laughs> counselor. I agree. I think, I, I think that zoom. would be excellent. We're going to Zoom with our governor's counselor coming up. Not today, but in a future episode, we're going to actually bring our governor's counselor in. Um and we're gonna we'll interview her, and I she can talk great. about it. I she's think, she's excellent. Yeah, we'll, we'll 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 cover this a little bit more. I think when that when that I think that makes more sense mm. instead of us rambling on oh, about yes, absolutely something that no one cares about. <laughs> Everything that no one cares about. <laughs> I mean, the body itself is it to me. It's fascinating. But um, our neighbors to the north, New Hampshire, 
they have a similar thing that this is the only other state that I found has it. And they are called the executive council. And they actually still have quite a lot of power. They approve governors like cabinet members. Um, they do. Uh, I think they still approve any budgetary contracts above like $10,000 or something like that. So this is like a five person body in the state of New Hampshire that's elected by people that has quite a significant amount of power in state politics or at least the governance of the state of New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And I think it's quite interesting that nobody knows who they are. And that's uh, why would you want to run for that? So what are you running for? You're running for what? You're running for what? I don't even know the name of this segment. You're running for what? <laughs> that's the governor's council. Um, we'll talk about that more. It, it is very obscure. It's rather interesting. It, it's quite fascinating. Um, we will we'll get back to that. I think there are probably other... other um, portions of this that we can talk about but um where are they now where are they now oh this is this is gonna be a fun segment where are they now Uh, that I think who are where are they now um, this person's still in their home in Brookline um, they're teaching um, and they in fact are the last um, presidential candidate mm. who was not president mm -hmm. who's still alive from the 20th century presidential candidate mm -hmm. who was a candidate in the 20th century. But not president. But not president, but is still currently alive. Of the two major parties. Of the two major parties. You mean they got the nomination? Yes. Okay, well, you're narrowing it down to two people. Yes. Okay. I mean, that could only that could <laughs> only be two different people. No, it's 20th century, so technically 1900 to 2000. Okay. So who's alive still, Gary? Mike Dukakis. Mike Dukakis! Yeah. Only <laughs> like last week that wasn't yeah, true. That's so. true. Yeah. Uh huh. So the final the final member of this exclusive club, um, and of course a Massachusetts politician and all around great guy, um, Mike Dukakis. Where is Mike Dukakis now? Uh, Mike Dukakis is teaching uh, at Northeastern and um, I think UC Berkeley, I believe. Um, he. Uh, has a train station named after him. I'm going to argue that Al Gore was a gubernatorial candidate in the 20th century. <laughs> 2000 is the start. Nah, I'm, I'm going to guess in 1999 he was running. Probably. Okay. Yeah. Not to burst that bubble. Yeah. He wasn't a president either. He wasn't a presidential nominee at that point. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Gotcha. Sure, sure. Technicality. Sure. Um, so, Mike Dukakis teaching... Uh, has a new train station named after him a couple of years ago. South Station is now the Mike Dukakis station. Um, and is still advocating to this day. Yeah, it's really the only thing he's doing. For the North-South Link, which in Massachusetts, one of our funny little quirks, we have two major train stations in the city of Boston. North Station and South Station. And North Station goes to Maine. And Canada and South Station goes everywhere else. I don't know if it goes to Canada. It does. We don't have a direct link. You have to get off a train in Maine. To get yes, to it, yeah. but you can get there as opposed to n you can't from South Station. Right. Okay. So okay. the whole point would be to be able to go from right. Maine. So to the, the entire thing is that. Uh, you have these two major stations, and they don't connect at all. At all, they're 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 on opposite sides of the city. But um, Mike Dukakis, oh, Mike Dukakis. All right, well, that's where Which, they are. Where by are they the way, now? Mike Dukakis. <laughs> this is the funny funny fact about Massachusetts politicians: uh, every Thanksgiving gets like like massive amounts of turkey carcasses left at his house. Mike Dukakis. Mike Dukakis. Because turkey carcasses, turkey carcasses. That's weird. Like you carve up your turkey and the bones and meat that's left over. You bring to Mike Dukakis. Mike Dukakis's house. Yeah, 
because one time he because he's greek and he talked about how his family like grew up not wasting anything and like they have like these like recipes from his family that's been passed down and so he said turkey carcasses is great because you make turkey soup and so he did this interview with the boston globe and like the next day there was like 10 turkey carcasses like on his front porch and mike dukakis didn't know that who doesn't throw away anything like he's known to be like a, not stingy because that's a negative connotation but right, thrifty right. right uh i mean the man literally took the tea to work every day um took the tea to work the morning after he lost the presidential election that's right yep um so he saved these turkey carcasses and put them in the freezer to make turkey soup for later and then like more showed up the next day and this year this was like three or four years ago. This year, he did another interview with the Boston Globe saying, please do not <laughs> give <laughs> me money. Stop leaving turkey carcasses at my home. And he like gave out like the family recipe to make turkey soup. So Good you can do it at home. Wow. That's yeah. great. That was fantastic. I never knew I, that. How have I known that? That's, that's great. It's such a good story. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, I guess... Uh, <sighs> Sort of the other big thing kind of going on um, in the news lately are the um, tornadoes that just sort of uh, swept through the Midwest, uh, about 200 miles of tornado, or a tornado for about 200 miles and several others along the way. Um, and one of the more puzzling stories for me is the story of the Amazon facility uh, that was sort of swept up in Illinois. Um, Southern Illinois. Yeah, and it uh, hey, there's so many stories like this, but but the the story that you hear is, and you know, we can't, we're not gonna say that this is the actual way it happened, but you know, there are stories out there that individuals at that facility were told they could not go home, and they could not leave, um, and if they did, they would be fired um, prior to these storms coming in. You know, people were trying to leave or wanted to leave, and. Um, because they got storm warnings. Yeah, the family at home, they wanted to, you know, be safe and whatnot. And there are stories of that. There's not really a lot of evidence that they actually said, no, you can't go home, you'll be fired. These are just sort of secondary stories that we're getting from people that were there. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, and it just brings up the larger question that uh, that's, you know, there, there was a facility that was hit. It was six people, I think, that died mm -hmm. in that facility, several others injured. Um, and the warning for that storm went out to people who were there 30 minutes before they were actually hit. And it just boggles my mind that you got a warning 30 minutes before and you couldn't get everybody to safety. Um, just brings into question a lot of not only OSHA regulations, but just uh, a lot of practices on the floor there. I know for a long time, Amazon did not allow its workers to have their cell phones um, with them because... I guess they, you know, didn't want them looking at their phones. They wanted them working and whatnot. Um, yeah, different things like that. They didn't want them taking breaks and whatnot. And it just comes to question whether or not that's actually safe or or whatnot. It just it, it's 2021, and we we're still fighting for workers' rights for something fair, basic. Yeah, it'll be 2022. <laughs> but we're still making these fights. It's just it, you know, unions are not as, as you heard in our opening, <laughs> the great <laughs> senator from Vermont. Um, uh, uh, soon to be senior senator, in fact. Yeah, he will admit, uh, we, we, he, he goes on in that interview to talk about just the millions of Americans that are younger, younger generation, just don't understand the importance of it, um, mainly because unions fought so hard for so long um, to, to get these rights that the rights that we have now are, are good. So the well, they're good in many cases, if you're unionized, you have good working conditions. Yes. And that, and that's sort of a thing where it's, it's because a lot of these jobs that you get into, um, they're modeled after if you work for a private company, it's not union, but the work day is defined by what union workers fought for. Mm -hmm. Now there may not be a union at that place of occupation, right? If you work in a, I don't know, if you work in a, a an office as, yeah. as an accountant, right, your your job probably goes from eight to five. You have a forty hour work week. You have all these things that unions fought for for the for years, um, and it's just tough for people to understand that the unions are, are are sort of we're at the forefront of that. And I think 
in the way the senator puts it, there's just millions of people who just don't understand the importance of of continuing to organize and continue to be a union. And just because there's not necessarily you're not fighting for a you know a livable wage in the sense of like you're not making bare minimum twenty cents on the dollar of what you should be making, right? You're now we we argue you know you might be making a couple dollars less than than what you need, which is that's one thing. But when you're making ten dollars less than what you need. Um, that's when a union's important, but that's not just when a union's important. Unions are important for for several reasons, and um, I just because it, it drew back to me to like the first big event or the two big events I think for me for union organizing that had sort of prevalent in my brain. And when I when I hear stories like this that we're still fighting, I think of a obviously the Bread and Roses um, strike, which is Homegrown home, home yeah, story for us. For a Lawrence story, a, you know, textile worker, a women in a textile mill striking. Um, and I think of the Triangle Shirtwaist fire just because that now very similar to what happened in Illinois. But the Triangle Shirtwaist fire happened in 1911. And it was... Uh, I don't know anything about that. Yeah, you do. No, I don't. You don't uh, know anything about the Triangle Shirtwaist fire? I've never heard of it. You're just doing this just for the fun of this? No, I, I, I honestly am I'm reacting. Really? Okay. Well, here's here's our deep dive now. All right. Great. <laughs> so the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. I learned about this in high school. Wow. Okay. Um, I had a public education. Day. So did I. <laughs> I, I was, it was a vocational <laughs> education. Wow. Okay. So the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire. Um, there uh, a, a building in New York. Um, a building still there. Uh, there was a, the Triangle Shirtwaist Company. They Is that the actual name of the yeah, company? Yeah, the Triangle Shirtwaist That's company. That's such a bad name for a company. Um they occupied, I believe, like floors eight, nine, ten, and eleven of this building. Sure. And they uh they did um they were textile, woolen. You yeah. know, they did they did they made shirts. As you do. And what would happen was uh what happened on this day actually was March twenty fifth. Um what actually happened. Uh what year again? Sorry. Nineteen eleven. March twenty fifth, nineteen eleven. Year before Bread and Rose's strike. Yeah, actually, right before. Um so they occupied the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of the 10-story building. Uh, so the very top of the building. Um, and they normally employed about 500 workers, of obviously all immigrants, right, at this point in time. Um, mostly women and girls, some mm. men. Of course, the men were the supervisors. Um, but the women and younger girls, I think they, they ranged from an age of, um, uh, I, I know, of the, of the deceased, um, Anywhere from 14 to 43. Hmm. So it was a, a wide variety. Uh, they worked 52-hour um, work weeks. Uh, they made between seven and twelve dollars a week, uh, to the equivalent today um, of about 200 to 300 dollars a week. It's the equivalent today's or, uh, today's equivalency of three dollars and sixty-seven cents to six dollars and twenty-nine cents an hour. Oh, that's almost our uh, federal minimum wage. Right. So you can understand that. Seven twenty-five follows keeping track at home. Right. So as as the story goes, um, what happened was they're they're in this they're in, they're in there, and there are a couple different ways that people claim this happened, but I think the most notable and the most recognized one is um, a discarded cigarette in a waste basket. Huh. Um. I no, I I don't I haven't read this anywhere, but I remember watching See, a movie. Smoke, there there is smoking, a movie. Smoking kills. Yeah, there there is a movie. Um, because the first thing you'll read is the company. The first thing they said was they outlawed cigarettes. There were no cigarettes were not allowed really? in the working building for this reason. I remember in high school watching this this documentary. It wasn't a documentary; it was a movie because it was dram dramatized, and it was like the floor boss's office. He discarded the cigarette in his wastebasket. Mm. So I don't know if that was just propaganda from, you know, the, the boss, you know, <laughs> might, the, might the have boss been. caused the fire. I don't yeah. know. It could have been a work or two, but in this movie in particular, and I haven't been able to find anything to substantiate which, which of that was throws it in there on the eighth floor now. So the eighth floor catches fire. Whole floor or just like a section? Um, I'm going to say, guess a second. Yeah, so it started, um, it sort of started in the back corner. Yeah. I only know this now because I've, I've looked at like the fire reports on it, but um, it started in that office in, in Smoke Group um, in the eighth floor. Now, this is like the weird, 
weird part about this. They had the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors. Everybody on the 8th floor, they see the smoke. Get out. They get they get out yeah. right away. They go down the, the normal stairwell. Fire starts to grow. Before they leave, they get the phone. They call everybody on the 10th floor. Say there's a fire. Get out. People start leaving. Sure. There's no phone to the 9th floor. Nobody stops on the way? Nobody stops on the way. Jerks. But I believe, and I don't know exactly how this happened, but... I believe the main stairwell sort of becomes almost uninhabitable at that point. But there are other exits to yeah. this. But the major stairwell. The major stairwell. I believe. I could, now, here's what the most important part was. The people on the ninth floor find out about the fire when the fire reaches them. Mm. Now, when the fire grows so large in the eighth floor, we're talking, this is a this is early 20th century. This building was built in the 19th century. These buildings were built to last, right? They, they were not... Um, they're mill buildings, you right? They're big brick, the right? The building so down, yeah. the fire had to have been going. I want to say it was like, I don't see if there's anything. It had to be like 10 minutes or so. Um, yeah, because at approximately 4.40, it says, a fire flared up in a scrap bin under one of the cutter's table in the northeast corner of the eighth floor, cutter's table. I, I've heard different on that. But now they said within five minutes, you could see smoke from the street. That makes that makes that makes, that sense. makes sense. Yeah, somebody probably opened the window. So it says a, a bookkeeper on the eighth floor was able to warn employees on the tenth floor via telephone, but yet there was no audible alarm. So they had to warn them, but they uh, they so had to scream no like, fire. Yeah, there was no like no fire alarms, alarms at yeah. that point. Uh, according Let to alone some, fire department. Yeah. So they said that the fire on the ninth floor, or the warning, arrived the same time that the fire arrived Ooh. onto the ninth floor. Now, although the floor had a number of exits, including two freight elevators, a fire escape, and a stairway down to Green Street, flames prevented workers from descending that main stairwell on Green Street, right? And the door to Washington Place, which is the secondary one, sure. not the fire exit, but the secondary one, was locked. It was locked to allow managers... Control. To check women's purses on their way out Shut up. to prevent them from stealing. Shut up. So they lock these doors. Control, right? Now, they, they say, obviously... I'm mad. Various historians have also ascribed the exit doors being locked to managements wanting to keep out union organizers due to management's anti-union bias. Oh, boy. Now, the foreman who held the stairway door key had already escaped by another route. Dozens of employees escaped the fire by going up the Green Street stairway to the roof. Other survivors were able to jam themselves into the elevators while they continued to operate. Now, the, the, they did continue to operate um, for a while. I remember that in the video, too, that there was like an elevator guy who just kept going up and down and kept bringing people. But every time he'd get up there, so many people would try and get on. It would be it's tough to get people to stop. Terrified employees crowded onto a single exterior fire escape which city official, officials had allowed to be erected instead of the required third staircase. So this sounds like it was like a, an outdoor, one of those outdoor metal. Oh, yeah. It describes it as flim, flim, flimsy and poorly anchored iron structure, which makes you think it's like a fire escape. Yeah. Um, very quickly collapsed from the heat and the overload of people. Uh, about 20 victims would fall about 100 feet to their deaths on that. On that um. So now you have your... You have your Exit ways, right? You have your main stairway, the green stairway, the green street stairway, which is overcome. The Washington one, which is locked because that exit, they don't want people taking breaks. They don't want people stealing. stealing. They, they, they want to keep control yeah. busting, right? The freight elevators. Now, I, I, at least in the movie, I'd, again, take this with a grain of salt, but I believe it's like the, the guy goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. He finally makes it up one more time. And by that point, when he makes it up, the flames were already there, and the flame takes him as well, and the elevator just stops oh, working at that point. Dra yeah. Dramatization. That might be a dramatization, just. But I, I have heard that you hear many stories of heroes like that from that day. Now, um, what actually ends up happening is there's still a ton of people there. They they, they couldn't get out on the ninth floor, um, so all your exit ways are now in flames. In flames. Or non-existent. You're on the ninth floor. And this is something that you never want to have to think about. But when, when you're in there, I, I can tell you from experience, when smoke overcomes you, there's just no other. You go the only way you can, and that was towards the windows. And so people were out there. What ended up happening was they eventually got 
um, the fire, like, uh, I don't even know what they call it. I should know what they're called. Like the, the no, like the trampoline type like, thing. Oh, no. Like, that they could jump onto. Um, so people could jump into it. it was, I mean, we're talking 1911. They had like these sheets. big sheets. Yeah, sort of like sheets, but they were like in a metal ring. And it was like, it was what they very commonly used for escapes at that point. Um, and after like the first two or three people jumped, they realized that wasn't going to work. Um, unfortunately, there was just no other way. And people just started jumping. I believe the final total was... Uh, 146 people Ooh. ended up dying and it, uh, most of them jumping to their deaths um, or over being overcome by smoke. But um, as they said, there was a, um, a lot of eyewitnesses that said towards the end of it, um, people were jumping on fire because the fire, the fire was just so it was overtaking them. So um, here's the interesting part about that. And this is, I, this was in the movie too. And, and I've done research on this topic because i've always thought there was a really weird aspect of it but there's actually documentaries out there about this aspect of it which has nothing necessarily to do with the union part of it but several individuals said so several people who were down on the street level watching could identify in one of the windows a man in the black hat and the man in the black hat was standing out of the window and he was escorting women out of the window one by one it said it looked like he was escorting them. Into, he was he was opening the door to the car for them, and they were getting in the car. And this came from multiple people that there was this weird man. Are we get into like ghost stories now, he, Gary? Well, no. And, and this is the <laughs> thing is nobody's ever been able to identify the man. Uh, the man was never jumped or went back in the building, but so many people did. And you can actually not really conspiracy theory because these people did jump. But there there are several stories, and I always found that so fascinating. I get goosebumps talking about that. There was this man up there that just understood that the jump was going to be a lot more pleasant than what was about to happen. Right. That's and that's so grim, right? I, I, it's just, it's so tough and to think about it like that, but Google it. it it's, it's Google the man. It's the man in the black hat. Don't I think. Google that. No, it, no you, you can tell it. I mean, nightmares. it's important to Google because it gets back to this uh, thing is that that was in 1911, right? They, they unionized right after this. Um, and legislation was began, uh, Eventually, what would become OSHA came from this, but it wasn't OSHA at the time. It was Nothing. yeah, it was OSH. I think yeah. there was no A yet. I <clears> mean, <throat> um, that sort of came from what does this. The A stand for Gary? Administration. Oh, occupational safe, occupational safety and health association. I think administration, administration. Yeah, occupational safety and health administration. Gotcha. Um, but that sort of came from that, and it's just it's all these years later now. It's, it's a century later, century plus. 110 years later, and we have these Corman. individual, these companies that are just preventing people from organizing. It's just, well, and you can, it? Elon Musk just like literally like fine for union busting. Yeah. Oh, they, they were doing, um, they, they were doing all these things. Here's a crazy thing. Amazon, when they were voting to, um, whether or not they want to unionize, hmm. The amount of union busting that happened in there, uh, they would go so far as they created mailboxes to put your ballots in. Shut up. And they were put in front of the building. They wanted everyone to vote in the parking lot, actually, one day. They wanted to, that way it was clear, and the courts were like, no, you're not going to organize that. It's COVID also right now, too, right? Mail in ballots only. So they got their own mailbox. Now, this was, there was nothing on the mailbox, right? Nothing. Mm. It was just a blank mailbox. Yeah. Come to find out, the unions did their digging. The mailbox was actually a legitimate mailbox put there by the U.S. Postal Service. The U.S. Postal Service recommended that they put a box there. Mm-hmm. Why would the U.S. Postal Service want a box in front of Amazon? Amazon, right? Who's the U.S. Postal Service's largest customer right now? Amazon. Amazon. Who's keeping the U.S. Postal Service afloat right now? Amazon. I, can t- I, I, don't know. I I buy stamps quite a lot. I, no, I tell you, I talked to, without getting into it, I talked to plenty of people who have worked in the postal service that'll tell you that if it weren't for Amazon, they they wouldn't be there right now. Like the contracts with Amazon are, are what is keeping the postal service afloat. As in, obviously, it would make more sense for them if the Amazon didn't unionize. They don't want Amazon having well, to cancel the contracts. Of, of 
Correct. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the administration, because obviously they're having trouble with their own unions. Hmm. Um, and they don't want to lose those contracts. And so I just think that Amazon has been going above and beyond um, to ensure, like many corporations are. Walmart's another one. Um, Walmart's one of the biggest defenders for a we, long time. We could go on and on about union busting. It just, it's crazy to me that it, 110 years later, we are not as mad about this as we should be. To be fair, and it it's sounds because like we're, we're paying people the same amount of money. It, it feels like it, but it. I think in most cases you aren't. It, it, it's not even the money. It, it was really the working conditions, right? Bread and Roses was all about working conditions, working hours. Yeah, and it's the same thing. Your forty-hour work week. You know the fact that you have a break, the fact that you have a lunch. The fact that your bosses can't like control the heat or can't control the AC or <laughs> the fact that, you know, they have to make sure that there's a sprinkler system and bathrooms and, you know, all these safety things are in there. Even if you're not unionized, it's because of unions that you have this. And I think we're just sort of turned a blind eye to that. So that's the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire. Um, 146 and people. of course, are rambling. And that all into it, too. But that's. That's pretty much what we got today. Well, I mean, we can't walk away from this and not talk about Bread and Roses for like a second. Okay, talk about it for a second. Bread and Roses. Um, our local story here in Lawrence is really what put Lawrence, I would say, on the map <clears throat> for um, historically. Um, it's where unions essentially got their start is the is, is the slogan or the, the thought process behind it. And the reason why it's called Bread and Roses. Do you know why it's called Bread and Roses, Gary? Um, because uh, one of the it was uh, yeah, give us bread, but give us roses too. Um, it was, it was it one was of the cries. Yeah, yeah, so that cry essentially meaning they you want to be fed, but you want kindness. Yeah, and and I think that that I think that sums up a lot of what comes out of like union organizing and why people are doing it now and um. Essentially, people don't just want something that will put bread on their table. People want to have a decent life, to be able to go to work and enjoy their work, or at least not go home and hate themselves when they're leaving their work. I, mean, I feel like we could probably get it to Bread and Roses extensively oh. <laughs> on another day. Maybe on the anniversary we can we can get into it, or maybe on Labor Day next year. Yeah, We've got idea. time to, yeah. you know. Oh, we can do it at the Labor Day Festival. Oh, because we're not going to be really busy the first week in September. No, not at all. No, not at all. Okay. Um, but yeah, maybe we can do that idea for a future episode. Yeah, we'll do it live from the comment. That'd be great. Day. And we can get in people in the interview. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, thank for you. sticking with us again. Um, that's about all we have for today. Uh, again, wherever you're listening to us, feel free to review us, please. Rate us. Rate us. Subscribe. Do all that. Reach out to us. Um. Yeah, we'll keep doing this because we got nothing better to do. Because we like it. Yeah. Again, we hope you do. We hope you do too. All right, everybody, have a good night. Thank you. Or have a good day. Whenever you. Whenever you.